Well, I am excited to be sending our people out today. Um, I was uh, joking, joking with some fat pastors this week, and I uh, was just telling them you know, that we were sending out uh, one of our elders and, a, and another family that helps lead worship and serves in different ways, you know, and I said, um, I said, you know, the church is meant to send people out, but it's hard to send out your best, you know. And one of the other guys was like, I got a few I'd like to send out. <laughs> oh. But the truth is, this is our aim all along. I don't know why I'm popping here, Bart. Um, this is our aim all along. We want to be a church that makes disciples, who make disciples, that they grow to lead and serve and use their passions and gifts and abilities in ministry for the sake of the kingdom. And when the time comes, we want to send people out to go and do it elsewhere. Um, we want to send people out to build the kingdom. We, we don't aim to build a mega church right here. That's not our mission. Our, our mission is to make disciples and build the kingdom everywhere. And so it is a bittersweet time uh, today. It's bitter in that we say goodbye. It's sweet in that the kingdom of God advances. Our loss is for kingdom gain. And I really do believe that, that we as a church, we do gain by losing. Because as they go, people will rise up and fill the, the void and leadership will be cultivated in the life of someone else. And this is the way life goes. It's the way ministry goes. But I hope you know that, that as you connect here, and it, some of you, as you connect as covenant members, I hope you know that our, our mission is not just to have you come sit in a place and enjoy things. No, we, we want to see God change you. We want to be changed more and more into the image of Christ. As we do life together, as we disciple one another, we literally want to be different. Different because of this family, because of this dynamic. So we are changed through the word of God, through the people of God, by the spirit of God. We are changed more and more into Christ likeness. So today, ironically, we get to jump back into first John and talk about that. OK, so we're going to pick back up with our study through this epistle. First John, we've seen that God is the father of the eternal son, Jesus Christ. God is the father of the eternal son, Jesus Christ. John starts this letter by saying that which was from the beginning has been made manifest to us. We've seen him with our eyes. We've we've heard him with our ears. We've touched him with our hands. God has come to be with us. And John's going to summarize the message and the ministry of the incarnate son of God with really two main ideas. The first one. God is light. In him, there is no darkness, John says. Those who are in relationship with God through the Son walk in light. I love what Stephen's saying. First John, he has a way of just simplifying everything. Cut the fat, cut the fluff, get real with me. And Jesus or John says this. If, you, if you're walking with God, you're going to walk in the light. Our lives will be marked by righteous living. 
That does not mean that we don't sin. In fact, John says if anybody says they don't sin, they're a liar. The truth is not in them. It doesn't mean that we don't sin. It just means when we do sin, we confess our sins. And He is faithful and just to forgive us and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. Jesus Christ, John says, is our advocate with the Father, we've learned. That He's pleading your case. Not based on your goodness, but his. John says he's our propitiation. That Jesus shed his blood so that God's righteous wrath could be satisfied on your behalf and mine. God is light. And secondly, God is love. In the last half of the letter, this is the main focus. It's on the nature of God, the character of God, and the, and the character of God's children. That as children of this God of love, we will be a people who love. We are immensely loved by God. And out of that, we love one another. John says it really clearly in chapter 4. And we'll get to this in, in a week or two, but I wanted, to, uh, I wanted us to see this together as we jump into our text today. But in chapter four, he says this, beloved, let us love one another. For love is from God and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. Now, chapter four is showing us the roots of our love. The origin, the source of our love is God himself. We have received this love vertically from God. He he sent his son because he loves us. We've received this love from God vertically. And John's saying now we ought also to love one another horizontally. That love we've received, we now bend it, give it, send it out. To one another. In the text we're looking at today, we're not looking at the root so much as the fruit. The fruit of receiving God's love is loving one another. So our horizontal love for others branches off of the vertical love we've received from God. If you're not truly born again, then you are content. To not love others. In fact, you may have even grown callous to the hatred in your heart. You may feel justified in it. Well, they don't deserve my love. They deserve my hatred. John says a very bold statement in our text we'll look at today. He says, whoever does not love abides in death. As we work our way through 1 John, God is calling us to evaluate our hearts. Evaluate our hearts. The Holy Spirit's aim through this little book is that He would give confidence to us as true believers. Chapter 5, verse 13 is the, the whole, the main idea of the book. He says, I'm writing these things so that you may know you have eternal life. That you may know confidence. 
But it's also to expose the false faith of those who claim to know God. But their lives prove otherwise. And today he's dealing with this idea of love and hate. He says those who love are children of God. Those who hate abide in death. These are tough words, but uh, we need to take the Apostle Paul's admonition with this text. In 2 Corinthians 13, verse 5, he says, examine yourselves to see if you are in the faith. So let's let the the scripture of God just wash over us and let's uh, look intently at it as a mirror. Would you stand with me as we read from 1 John chapter 3? We stand in honor of the Lord's word. And then you can be seated for a bit, but let's read from verse 11 through the end of the chapter. First John chapter three, beginning in verse 11. For this is the message that you've heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. We should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his deeds were evil and his brothers righteous. Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. We know that we have passed out of death and into life when we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed. And in truth, by this, we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our heart before him. For whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart and he knows everything. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. And whatever we ask, we receive from him because we keep his commandments and do what pleases him. And this is his commandment that we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another just as he has commanded us. Whoever keeps his commandments abides in God and God in him. By this, we know that he abides in us by the spirit whom he has given us. Our father, Help us today to see what kind of love you have given to us that we should be called the children of God. Help us, Lord, to love one another. Where there's hurt and anger and bitterness, help us to forgive, to reconcile, to restore. Where there's hatred, Lord, enable our repentance. Lord Jesus, we want to love in the way that you have loved us. 
But we need you, Lord. In Jesus' name. Amen. Be seated. Would you guys agree that there is so much hate in this world? So much hate in our world. Over such little bitty things, too. We've come to a place, I think, in our culture where we no longer know how to disagree or to hold differing opinions without being enemies. It's a sad day where we draw the line so firmly, you know, in the sand, like you're either with me or I hate you. Contrary to the Bible's warnings, we are these days quick to speak and slow to listen. And this has been the fuel and the fire of hatred for for many of us. And in a day where we can hide behind our devices and just come off the hip with some of the worst kind of rhetoric. It just fuels this hatred for one another. And the Lord would say, stop it. Love one another. We hide behind our screens and we murder people in our hearts. We need to hear the words of Scripture today. So I want to give you just some basic truths from uh, the Apostle John here as he writes to us some truths about love and hate. First, love is a must. It's not optional. It's not a suggestion. This is not a, a good way to live. It's not a, you know, a better choice. No, this is a command from the Lord Jesus himself. It's a must. It's a command. In verse 11, John says, this is the message you've heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. Jesus said in John 15, um, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved. You also are to love one another. John 13, 34. And then in John 15, I think it's verse 12. He says, my command is this. Let's see what's happening here. My command is this, love each other as I have loved you. Love each other as I have loved you. My command, Jesus said. So love is a must, it's not an option. John says, um, um, this is the message you've heard from the beginning. So it's not new, this is not a new command, it's just, it's the old command of God wrapped up in in, in, a, in a new and fresh, well, just really just straight up. He's saying, love each other, love each other. When Jesus was asked, what is the greatest commandment? He said, I'll summarize it like this. Love God and love neighbor. It was really simple, you know, and you think back to the Ten Commandments and you think, well, that's really what it boils down to. There's four commands about loving God above all else. And then there's six commands about, you know, not stealing from your neighbor or um, taking your neighbor's wife as your own or coveting what your neighbor has. There's all these horizontal commands that when you summarize it all, if you if you love God and love neighbor, you've obeyed all the law. Love is a must. 
John says this is what we've heard from the beginning. That's the the truth about God. He's always been commanding our love. It's an old message. Um, Just a, a little aside here, just. I feel like in today's day and age, there's so much temptation with preachers to be, um, you know, Twitter worthy, you know, to, to, to have some kind of little statement that's great for tweets or whatever. And you see those all the time online. And I just want to warn us, church, be leery of new things. The newness. Everybody wants to come out with something new. John says, now I'm telling you what you've heard from the beginning. There's a pretty good rule of thumb. If it's new, it's probably not true. God's had the same message for a very long time. Love God. Love one another. John says, this is what you've heard from the beginning. You know, salesmen always want to pitch the new thing. There's really nothing new to this message. Truth, as we've said before, is not trendy. It doesn't change with the times. It just is. Truth, it just is. John's message is old. But we need to hear it anew. So love is not optional for believers. It's not good advice. It's the command of Jesus Christ. But John uses some contrasting characters to reinforce this truth. He says, don't be like Cain. Well, who's Cain? We have to go all the way back to Genesis 4 to read about Cain. But John says, don't be like Cain. I'll summarize a little bit. If you want to check out the details, please go read Genesis 4. The first, I think, 16 verses tells this story. But essentially, God had uh, told Cain and Abel to bring an offering of worship to him and Cain brought his offering from the field. You know, he was a farmer. He worked the, worked the fields and he brought, uh, you know, the best of his fields, his harvest to God and brought it to the Lord. All of his hard work in one offering. And Abel was a keeper of sheep. He was a shepherd, had a flock. And so he brought uh, the firstborn of his flock and slaughtered the sheep and brought a sacrifice offering to the Lord. Well, God rejected Cain and accepted Abel. We could dig deep into why that is. But let's just look at what happened. Cain was furious. He had worked really hard. He brought what he had earned to God and hoped that it would bring him favor with God. Does that sound familiar? Cain hoped for favor with God, but Abel got it. What did Abel do? He just killed a sheep. Just obeyed the Lord and brought a sacrifice to God. Maybe Cain thought, well, if a Blood sacrifice is what God wants. Blood is what he'll get. The Bible says that Cain went out into the field with his brother and slew him. Killed his brother. Now, I didn't know this until this week. So this is new for me, new information for me. But the word John uses 
Um, if you read Genesis, you just speculate. Well, how did he kill him? Did he hit him with a rock? Did he, did he you know, stab him with something? Did he, what, did he, you know, what did he do? How did he kill him? You know, maybe you speculate. But when you read 1 John, John gives us a detail. There's lots of words for kill or murder, but he uses a specific word that means slit the throat. Well, that's interesting. Because that was the prescribed method of sacrifice. Isn't it wild? The Cain presumably thought to himself, well, if God wants a sacrifice, I'll give it to him. He slit the throat of his brother. Hate had consumed Cain. God had warned him. Your, your enemy is crouching at the door like you. Don't go down this path. Don't, stop it. Don't go out there. Don't do this, Cain. But Cain went right along. Well, as John's teaching us and he uses this illustration of Cain and he says, don't be like Cain. Well, then he gives a quick little application verse right after that. And he says, don't be surprised when the world hates you. And he immediately makes this application right there of the Cain and Abel story. He says, you're kind of like Abel, maybe, as a a believer in Christ, trusting in the sacrifice to bring you favor. And Cain is like the world, or the world is like Cain, trusting in their works to bring them favor. And when the world sees you righteous because of Christ, they hate you. And John says immediately, don't be surprised when you're hated by the world. Because they're just like Cain. But John's admonition to us is don't be like Cain. I think, what does he mean here? Well, certainly he means that God knows our heart, right? It's hard, I think, for us to look back at the Cain and Abel story and pick it to pieces and go, well, what did he do wrong? I mean, it seems like he had good intentions. I mean, who knows? And all we can really come down to is to say, God knows your heart. He knows who you are at the core of who you are. And as it would turn out, we would see who Cain is at the core of who he is. God was not wrong. John's going to tell us specifically Cain was of the evil one. Well, what is John doing here when he when he brings Cain into the picture? This is really, again, an old message all the way back to Genesis four. I mean, we're one generation removed from Adam and Eve and we're murdering each other. What has happened? And what is the point of this? Well, Probably a lot of us would say, well, I've never murdered anybody. So if he's telling me, don't be like Cain, don't kill. I'm good. Check mark, right? Check that box. Never, never killed. Oh, but then we listen to Jesus. And Jesus says, if you have hatred in your heart, you've murdered. And we remember, oh, well, the problem back in the garden with Cain and Abel is that God knew Cain's heart. And Cain was not limited by any kind of law or rule or had no boundaries to put on him. And so when there was hatred, hatred was able to have its effect. Uh, 
When it comes to our heart, the, the question is not always, what have you done? But what did you want to do? I think that's where we settle in here, that John is really trying to drive our thoughts deeper. Don't be like Cain in your heart. Now, he gives us this contrast between Cain and Christ. Don't be like Cain. Love like Christ. So let's make the contrast. Cain was of the evil one. Christ is the son of God. Cain was selfish. Christ, compassionate. Cain was moved by hate. Christ, love. Cain took the life of his brother. Christ gave his own life for us to live. This is the contrast that John's wanting us to see. Don't be like Cain. Love like Christ. By this we know love, he says in verse 16. This is beautiful. We know John 3, 16 for God So love the world that he sent his only begotten son. But first John 3, 16 says this. By this, we know love that he Christ laid down his life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. So if he says to love like Christ and he does, how did Christ love? I want you to focus in on this expression. He laid down his life for us. Listen. How did Christ love? He chose it. He laid down. Jesus said, no man takes my life. I lay it down of my own accord and I'll take it up again. It was his own authority and he laid down his life. He chose to love us radically. He chose it. How did he love? It was costly. He laid down his life. Meaning he suffered, he died. It, was cost, it cost him everything. I think about it and in the moment, like when I watch movies like The Passion of the Christ, I think to myself, how could he possibly endure this much? I was reflecting this week. And I was, had an opportunity to uh, preach again every Thursday to Aniston's football team. And this was the message. I was talking about the meekness of Christ. And my mind went to the text in John's gospel where he tells the story of when they came to arrest Jesus. Are you familiar? When they came to arrest him, it was in the night. They came with their pitchforks, their spears, their swords. I don't know if they had pitchforks. They came with their swords and spears and shields and torches. And Jesus was like, I've been teaching in public square all this time. And you come by night with all your weapons. What do you you think? I'm a warrior, a barbarian. I'm a teacher. I'm a shepherd, he says. He says, who have you come to get? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus, do you remember what happened in John's gospel? He said these words, I am he. And when he spoke those words, an old message, right, from Exodus, when God said, uh, when Moses said, who shall I say sent me? And God said, you tell him I am sent you. Jesus said, let me tell you who I really am, not just Jesus of Nazareth. I am. I'm God Almighty. When he spoke those words, all those soldiers that came to get him with their earthly weapons, they fell down like dead men. It's amazing the power of God, the power of Christ. They all fell down like dead men. And then Jesus goes, you've come to arrest me. Come on. Do what you've come to do. Meekness, I was explaining to the football team, is power 
under control. And Christ exhibits such power under control that he lays down his life. It's a costly sacrifice. At any point he could have stopped, but he didn't. He loved like that, willing to self-sacrifice, not self-preservation. How did he love? He loved, I couldn't come up with a better C word, so I'll just say crazy. It's crazy love. Like he chose to love, it's costly love, and it's crazy. What do I mean by that? Well, here's what I mean. Jesus made a terrible trade when it comes down to it. Who did he die for? He laid down his life for whom? Us. What in the world? Look at yourself. Are you worth the death of the Son of God? The Apostle Paul in, in Romans 5 said it this way. Um, Christ, this is killing me right here. We're having issues. Here we go. We good? Yeah. All right. So the Apostle Paul says it this way in Romans 5. He says, every now and then somebody die for a good man. But almost never will someone die for an evil man. But God demonstrates his love in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. This is crazy love. Why would he do that? Because he loves you. John says we ought to love this way. So think about it. You must choose to love people. It's a choice. You must choose to love people. Now that choice is empowered by the Holy Spirit in us, but we choose to love people. And we choose to love people even when it costs us a great deal. So many of us, I think, struggle here. You know, as long as this is convenient, as long as it's easy... Then I'll love, but as soon as it gets hard or inconvenient or struggle, or if I gotta get up early, I'm out. Wait, you want me to you, you want me to change diapers and, and babysit kids? Checking out, done. Costly love. And then crazy love. Wait a minute, Lord, you want me to love them? And he's like, I mean, yeah, I loved you. John says we ought to love this way. I need to move. Love is a must. Second, love is the proof. Love is the proof. If we love God, I'm sorry, if the love of God is the root, love for others is the fruit. In verse 14, John says, we know, we know, this is proof, we know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. So here's here's what we're saying. Here's what John's saying. Love is the evidence of genuine faith. John is not saying that salvation is earned by loving others. He's not saying make sure that you love well, because if you don't love well, you're going to be in trouble. It's not what he's saying. He's saying that loving others is evidence that we do belong to God. It's evidence that we have experienced this great love. On the flip side, hate is the evidence of death, spiritual death. If you regularly write people off, routinely, just put people in no man's land, you know? Block that friend, 
unfriend. I'm glad to see you go. I'm not saying that's all bad. Sometimes that's needed. But I'm saying if that's your deal, that's your MO, maybe you're perfectly happy never reconciling with people and you hold hatred in your heart. John says you need to examine your faith. Have you truly experienced the radical, crazy, costly, chosen love of Christ? Because if you really have received this love, then the natural fruit of that, the proof of that, is in how you love one another. And as a Christian, Jesus calls and enables you to love. Even when it's hard. I think about a story uh, Mr. Bill was telling me Wednesday. He was telling me that his sister was run over by a car and killed. And for a long time, he hated the driver of that car. Just could not get through it. Just resented. and Hatred was there until he realized that hatred does more damage to the hater than to anyone else. It's like um, drinking poison, hoping the other person will die. So Bill's telling me, I finally forgave him. Let it go. And God worked in some crazy ways. He was telling me this morning, you know, as it turns out, we've actually become good friends. It's amazing how the Lord will work through those kinds of things. John's saying, let go of it. Let go of the hurt. Open your heart to love. I, I really believe somebody needs to hear this part today. You have broken relationships in your life that need your attention. They need Christ's attention. Make a phone call. Go see them. Look them in the face and say, you hurt me. But I forgive you. And I forgive you only because Christ has forgiven me. And if he can forgive me of all that I've done to him, then surely I can forgive you. You may say, well, they don't deserve to be forgiven. Neither do I. Neither do you. But it's grace, right? It's mercy. This is what makes us a people is that we have received mercy from God. And because we've received the mercy of God, we give mercy to others. This is love and love is life. Next, love is action. I wonder if you see that here. John is writing a lot and through this short little letter, he's going to tell us over and over. Talk is cheap. Would you agree? Talk is cheap. I feel like um, I've been really convicted actually about how often I send somebody like a prayer emoji or I send them a little message saying, I'm praying for you. I've been really convicted like, am I really? Or am I just saying it? Talk is cheap. John says love is action. Verse 18, he says, little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. The opposite of love, we often think, is hate, right? Well, John's going to go on to say, actually, the opposite of love is indifference. As he keeps talking, he says, how could the love of God live in you when you see a brother in need 
and do nothing. You, you turn. You, he actually says you close your heart off to him. Right. The opposite of love is not just hate, but indifference. It's not just it's not loving enough to just not kill somebody. Right. The gospel says, look, love doesn't just not do evil. It does good. And we are called to be a people who do good in this world. Love sees something, feels something, and does something. Love is action. The love that God has put in us, it shows itself in kind action. God didn't just say he loved the world. He sent his only son. And Christ didn't just come and say he loved us. He died for us. He laid down his life for us. Love is action. So stop talking. Start doing. See a need. Meet the need. My wife is a planner. I'm a bit more impulsive. Uh, Lauren likes to plan our every move out. I've already have a list of where I'm going after church. I have to go pick up some things from the grocery store because she's got a plan. And I'm on it. But I've learned that the Lord works through my impulsiveness and he will put somebody on my heart. And I know, I know now the Holy Spirit's taught me. Now, Justin, now I want you to do something about this now. I've learned that if if he puts somebody on my heart and I, oh, okay, I'll call him, I'll call him later when, when things are not crazy, when it's not busy, when I'm this, when that, I don't. I missed it. But I've had so many opportunities where I make a call or I send a text and somebody says, you have no idea what I was going through when you called. I needed that right then, right then, right then. And the Lord's just taught me like he knows better than I do. And he's going to give me what I need and I need to act on it. And this is the same for you. Love is made visible in the active kindness of God's people. So love is action. Next, love gives confidence. Love gives confidence. Verses 19 and verse 21, John says, By this we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our heart before him. He says we have confidence before God. I want to tell you just a few quick statements right here, quickly. Your heart cannot be trusted. Jeremiah 17, verse 9. This is a pretty famous verse, but here's what it says. Your heart is deceitfully wicked. Who can know it? Jeremiah asks the question. Well, John answers that question in this text, doesn't he? He says, he says here, whenever your heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart. He knows everything. Jeremiah 17, he says, your, your heart will deceive you. It'll tell you things that are not true, but God knows everything. So your heart cannot be trusted. God is greater than your heart. When when you can't trust your heart, what your heart's telling you, trust his promises. Trust what God has said in his word. You can bank on it. And then we know from the text already, God knows your heart because he knows everything. God knows everything. Everything, And then I love the beautiful promise here about prayer. Whatever we ask, we receive from him because we keep his commandments and do what is what pleases him. Lastly, God hears your prayers. 
God hears your prayers. Love gives this kind of confidence. To abide in Christ is this kind of confidence. Let me summarize today with just a quick gospel exhortation. Cain and Abel, right? Cain brought the best of the work of his hands to the Lord. And he was furious when that wasn't enough. There's coming a day when many people who have brought the best that they had to God will discover that it's not enough. This is a scary reality. That you can work your fingers to the bone doing and doing and doing and doing and doing and bring all that to God hoping that life is going to be good, it's all going to be okay. And it's not. Relationship with God never depends on what you do. It all rests on what Christ has done. This is the beauty of gospel sacrifice is that it's not about what you can bring to God. It's about what Christ has already brought to God. He paid the ultimate sacrifice so that we would rest in Him. That does not mean that we sit back and do nothing. It means that the activities that we live in, the love that we offer comes as a fruit, a fruit of resting in him, of abiding in him. Our love is not our work. Listen to what the scripture says. Verse 23, this is the commandment that we believe in the name of the son, Jesus Christ, and love one another. If you truly believe in the Son of God, in His work for you, who He is, His character, His person, that He is the ultimate display of love, that in that ultimate display, He gave His life for you. If you rest and believe in Christ, love will be the natural outflow of that. It will be what happens. It's like... Planting that plant in the soil of God's love, the fruit that comes naturally is love for others. Your hope is not in what you do or how you love, but in what Christ has done and how he loves. Church, out of that, let's walk in obedience, joyful obedience to the commands of our Lord. Let's love each other really well. Amen? Amen. Let's pray.